Let me see if I got it on here. Okay. Okay, let me tell you something. You cannot live today's lesson. You can't do it. It's impossible. In fact, even as I was preparing it and praying over it, I thought, they are going to sit there and say, this is absolutely impossible. I'm not even going to give it the allowance in my life that I possibly can live it out. It's too hard. It's too deep. It's too crazy talk. It's too contrary to our culture. It's too everything. And yet it's the Word of God. And yet Jesus says, or the Word says, this is how I want you to live. So, we got to pray. Around your table, I want you to do something. You don't do a lot, but I want to encourage you to do it. Because remember I said this, my goal for you this year is that everybody learns to pray out loud. It's not even a learning thing. It's just everybody doesn't. Because you don't learn to pray out loud. You just pray out loud and get less discomfortable with it, uncomfortable with it. So around your table, I want everybody to pray out loud and ask the Lord to help you to be open and receptive to what the Spirit wants to say to you today. Now, if you are really good at praying out loud, I want you to pray short. Because if you don't, you'll be real intimidating to the people who don't like to pray out loud. So pray real short. If you're good at praying out loud, if you're comfortable, just pray a sentence. And around your table, everybody, just tell the Lord that you really, really, really need him today. And then I'll close in prayer. Go. So chapter 1, verse 27, he writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. When he uses that phrase, conduct yourselves, when he wrote that in the original language, he would normally have used a word which means, as you walk about, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, as you walk about. But instead, he uses a word that's only used twice in the entire New Testament, and it meant this, to be a citizen of. To be a citizen of. As you are a citizen of, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, why did he use that? Let me um, help us to understand that. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Philippi was a Roman province. And the citizens were very, very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. There was a special honor to being a Roman citizen. There was a special there were special responsibilities as you were a Roman citizen. They were just so proud of their citizenship. And the goal of a good Roman citizen was to bring honor to their nation. Be an honorable citizen. And so Paul says, whatever happens to you, Be a citizen of, in a manner worthy of the gospel. What's he talking about citizenship here? Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. A verse that we've referred to periodically in Heartstrings. Chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. Once you get saved, once you give your life to Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. And he goes on to say, I just think this doesn't have anything to do with the lesson, but I just love it. And we eagerly await a savior from there. It's like he's saying, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm waiting for the king. I'm waiting for the ruler. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform Patty Bray's lowly body so that it will be like his glorious body. I'm a citizen of heaven, and one day I'm going to go and be a real part of the place that I'm a citizen, of which I'm a citizen. So he says, whatever happens, you're a citizen of heaven. Don't forget that. Don't neglect that truth in your life. And I think we forget that so much. We tend to go, I am so relegated, I am so aware of this world around me that it's easy to forget I'm a citizen of heaven. And he says, whatever happens, live like it. Live like you're a citizen of heaven. Live like he's your king. Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of being a citizen of heaven. And he says... Live for the honor of your king. 
He's implying, live for the honor of your king. Live worthy of this, this realm that you now live in. And so I wonder, a good question for us to talk about around your tables would be this. What do you think that it means to live or to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Now, I want you to be real specific about this. I want you to think about <laughs> such areas as um, a Christian worker in a secular environment. So, let's say that you're a teacher or you're an administrative assistant or you're a retail worker. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel right there? Think about a Christian wife in a struggling marriage. What's it mean to live worthy of the gospel? What about if you're going through ridicule or rejection? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? What if you're a Christian going through an extreme time of temptation? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? And then the second question there on your note-taking guides is this. <clears throat> what do you think keeps us from being consistently people who conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? So you got the question? Be really, really specific. In your life, in your realm of influence, in your way you live, What's it mean for you to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? What's it mean for you to conduct yourselves as if you're a citizen of heaven? Be as specific as you can, and then make sure you get to that second question about what keeps us from consistently conducting ourselves that way. I'm going to give you about a little, like an extra minute or two to, on this one because I just want you so much to really just think and, and, and kind of um, uh, grapple with this issue, with those two questions. Go. Let me have you... Um, did you have any good responses to the, question, the part about... What do you think keeps us from consistently conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Did you have any, just throw out maybe three or four, what keeps us from consistently conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Bonnie? What, what Bonnie said, because I heard this at another table too, uh, she said, I just get so um, impatient and angry over things that don't matter. Things that, that in the line of eternity, especially, you're like, so? That's, but I've heard, I've heard that from a lot of people, and I heard that even this morning. Give me another one. What else keeps us from consistently conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Fear. Fear. Why fear? Erica? Erica said one of the things that keeps us from consistently living lives worthy of the gospel is fear. We're afraid of the consequences of what we do if we say yes. And we're sometimes not even sure we're going to hear him correctly. Great answer. Two great answers. Give me, Chris. Laziness. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we're just lazy people who don't want to live disciplined lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Another person? Frankie? I've just been uh, studying the gospels a lot lately, and I just keep going back all the time to when Jesus said, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if, if it's in your heart, it's going to come out. And if it's not in your heart, it's not going to come out. And so I just continually go back to the fact of, it's not my mouth that's the problem. Now, it appears that way, doesn't it? But the mouth is only a reflection, an indication of what's inside. That's why Jesus talks so much about the heart. That's why the heart has to be purified. That's why the heart has to be sanctified. That's why I continually have to come before him and say, cleanse me of impatience, cleanse me of fear, cleanse me of anger, cleanse me of laziness. And then as he cleanses, then the life, the rest of my life, the, the manifestations of that begin to appear. But it's always a heart issue, guys. We always have to go back to the heart. Anything else that, that you left out, Amanda? Oh, for lives that are lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. I had Whitney make little cards for you, little business-sized cards that you can take home, put in your purse, put in your Bible, put somewhere where it becomes just where you see it all the time. Because one of the things we said at the table I sat at this morning is somebody said, so true, she said, you know, until this last year, I've not even realized 
that I need to be more patient with my workers, that I need to be more kind, that I need to see them as my mission field. We come to stuff like this. You know, we go to, we hear the message, and we come to heartstrings. We go to our Bible study. We go to our Bible study in the, uh, uh, in the daily devotional time. These are things then that, that get us to, to do what, what Amanda's been talking about. It begins to reshape what we believe that we want to live. That's why it's so important to do stuff like this. That's why it's so important to be consistent in church. That's why it's so important to be in the Word regularly. So that those things begin um, metamorphosizing you. That's not the way to say it. You begin being changed from the inside out. My question for us is this. Not are you perfect in this. Not are you perfectly living a life worthy of the gospel. Because you're going to have a lifetime of God working on this. My question is, are you making progress? Are you making progress? Some of you are growing more than you realize. You know how I know? You're becoming aware. Where somebody said a year ago, I wasn't even aware of this. That means you're making progress. The fact that you feel conviction is great news. The fact that it's bothering you that you're not living a life worthy of the gospel and everything is great news. Because it means that you're being more responsive and aware of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So be happy for conviction. Be happy that God is speaking to you. Be happy that you're going, man, I've got a long ways to go. Especially when that shoots you to your knees. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves as if you're a citizen of heaven. Don't you want to live that way more than ever? Don't you want to live as if the king really is watching you? Don't you want to live so that you go through the day and you say, man, I look back and I say, a year ago I would have yelled at my husband, and I didn't. A year ago I would have been a smart aleck to those people that work with me and for me, and I wasn't. Or, a year ago, I wouldn't even have noticed it when I let that word come out. That was in my heart. And now I notice it. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we've spent like 25 minutes longer than I planned to spend on this part. But oh, if you can get this part, if you can let this be the foundation of your life, if I can let this be the foundation of my life then the rest of this part that's coming up in our lesson, the rest of this part that you go, whoa, do you really think he's trying to tell me to live that way? You go, oh, that's part of living a a life worthy of the gospel. Now, before we get to the harder part, we're going to set the stage a little bit more. It's almost like we're doing building blocks today. The first one is, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The next building block is this. Live out a life of gratitude. Live Live a life... I can't even talk. Live out of gratitude. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> Let me mention, first of all, it appears that um, there were a couple of women in the church at Philippi who were fighting with each other and griping and grumbling and gossiping. It had become such an issue that here Paul is in a Roman prison and Epaphroditus, who's bringing the gift of money and, and some help to him, Tells them about these two women. Wouldn't it be horrible if your names get written in the Bible because you've been fighting with another person? Oh my goodness. Look at chapter 4. Let's just briefly look at what these women were, uh, how they're named here. I just feel so sorry for these. Well, I don't feel sorry for them. I just go, oh man, Lord, please don't have my name written in any way like that. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul's taking it really, really seriously because evidently it is kind of infiltrating the church and causing some divisions, some factions. And so he writes and says, I plead. He doesn't say, hey guys, could you take care of this problem? He goes, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche 
to agree with us, each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side. I mean, these women love the Lord. They love the church. Who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He goes, I just plead with them that they would find agreement and that they would stop their fighting. So they're developing some problems in the church. And man, that's not relegated to the first century, is it? And Paul's going to address it, but he does it in a fascinating way. Oh, actually, I think probably when he says, uh, turn over to chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 14. Scholars wonder, and I think it really makes sense, if he's really kind of subtly addressing their problem in chapter 2, verse 14, when he's saying, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. We wonder if perhaps he is alluding to their problems here. And so he's going to address the, he's going to deal with the issue, but he's going to do it in a really neat way, I think. He's just this master lawyer, actually, this lawyer mind. And he says to them, have you ever received anything great from the Lord? Has anything great ever been done for you from the Lord? And he uses, what, four or five different specific ifs here. And I want us to look at them just kind of briefly and and then see what he says. Whoops. Did I just go off? You skipped the the first sentence. Huh. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. It just went off. Yeah, Cheryl, would you see if you could find him? It says, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Does any of these things ever happen to you? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Oh, Dell, you got a, a line? Some of you are looking at me like I've left out a line. Oh, when it comes to arguing. It appears that there are some problems in the church when it comes to arguing with one another. You can always tell by your faces. Four ifs. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, if any of those things have happened, then make my joy complete by... And I'm going to tell you what those are in just a little bit, but we're going to wait a second on those because I want to delve into these just for a minute. He says, four bullet points there. Hey, you ever had any encouragement from being united with Christ? The Greek word means to come alongside of and to help counsel or exhort. He says, have you ever had any time when being united with Christ has given you any comfort? Uh, I'm I'm sorry, has he ever come alongside you and helped you? He asks in effect, shouldn't this divine influence of Christ in your life compel you to live in a certain way, which he's going to tell them how to live in just a little bit. And I, I ask you today, have you ever had any encouragement from being united with Christ? Have you ever been discouraged and had him encourage you? Have you had any time when you just go, man, I couldn't get through this except the Holy Spirit came alongside me. Boy, I've had those times when I thought, I can't live without him helping me. Then he says, do you ever had any comfort from his love? The Greek word there, this is so beautiful. He says, do you ever had any comfort from his love? But it's a Greek word that portrays the Lord coming close And whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in the believer's ear. Isn't that beautiful? You ever have any time, he says, when the Lord has just come close to you and just as if he's whispered into your heart and into your soul, gentle cheer or tender counsel. Man, I've had those times 
when I've just been despondent or I've been overwhelmed or I've been heartsick or I've been worried or I've been anxious or I've been whatever. And it's like the Holy Spirit has just come and just whispered, Patty, we're going to make it. Here, I'm, I'm with you. I'm helping you. I'm strengthening you. Ever had that happen? He says, have you ever had any fellowship with the Spirit? I hope you have walked close enough to the Lord to experience the fellowship of walking with Him. I hope that you really know, this is actually a word that talks about partnership. It's as if you experience the partnership of the Holy Spirit. I hope you've walked with Him deeply enough to know His partnership, His fellowship. Usually that comes and that happens as you walk through deep waters. I don't usually find the depth of fellowship that comes from the Spirit when things are going really, really easily for me. Now, I know other parts of Him when things, I know His joy, I know His, you know, His laughter. But when things go rough, I know the fellowship of the Spirit in ways that I could never know it otherwise. And he says, have you ever experienced any tenderness and compassion? Any tenderness and compassion? Have you ever just known God's presence where he just fills you and he just says, I'm loving you, I'm tender with you, I'm comforting you, I'm compassionate for you. Now, I have a question for you just around your table. Just a real quick one. It's not even the best one, but I want you to talk to each other just for a minute so you stay really attentive. As you look at those four bullet points, which one would you say, yeah, this is one I've experienced I could tell you about. Either his encouragement, his comfort, his fellowship, his tenderness. Or this question too, um, which one do you need the most right now in your life? Which one would you say, because of the experiences that I'm walking through, I really need the encouragement that he could provide. Or, I really need comfort. I am just not feeling comfort from God. Or which one would you say, I just need the fellowship. I just need to know that we're in partnership. I just need to know his friendship. Or maybe you just need his tenderness and his compassion. Which one would you say you have experienced? Or, which one do you need right now in your life? We'll only take time for about two or three of you to uh, share this. But I want you to be able to share it so that people around your table can say, I want to pray that for you. So a couple people jump in there and share either which one have you received or which one do you need to receive. Go. I know that's not much time. But at least it got a couple of you to share. And at the end of class today, we'll give you some more time to pray together over the things that you just shared. I just want to tell you, when I look over that list there, (laughs) I recognize that whatever our needs are, the Holy Spirit is enough. Do you need comfort? It's there. Do you need encouragement? He's there. Do you need fellowship? He's there. Do you need tenderness and compassion? He's there. He is there for whatever your need is. So Paul says, have you ever received any of those? Now, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? In fact, some uh, scholars say that it really could be translated, since you have received, since you have received, since you have received. Then he says, how do I want, then how should you live as a result of receiving those things? I mean, he's really just building the building blocks of, you guys, look at all you've gotten from him. Look at all he's done in your life. Because of that, live this way. And if he really is then writing about these kind of divisions and some factions that are happening in the church because of Yodi and Syntyche, then it could be that he's saying, listen, look at all God's done for you. And because of that, you need to live this way. And let's look at verse 2 and see how he says to live then. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's take each one of them just for a second, okay? And uh, pull them out a little bit. I want you to think about this in relationship to your heartstrings table, your church, your family, and especially people that kind of bug you. I have had people leave heartstrings before and say, I'm really having a hard time about somebody around my ta- at my table. What do I do? So take it in relationship to heartstrings. Had lots of times when people have said, man, my husband is, you know, I just want to kill him. Take it in relationship to that. Or mother-in-law. Or your work people. And he says, if you've received any of these things from God, then be this way. Be like-minded. Be like-minded. Look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I think that's the verse I wanted to look at. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1.10. another place where he uses the same idea. You know, he's writing to the Corinthian church. They had a lot of divisions, a lot of splinters, a lot of people uh, fighting with one another. And he says in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another so that there will be no divisions among you. And that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And he goes on then to talk about the quarrels that they're having. He uses the same idea, be like-minded. And it has the idea of having, actually, on the the line right beside there, put this word, um, put this phrase, common disposition to work together. A common disposition to work together, or a common feeling to work together, a common willingness to work together. He says, be like-minded. He's not talking about everybody agreeing about everything. But he says, that in that second one, have the same love. Love each other so much that you're being like-minded about the things that really matter. And then he says in verse uh, 2, be one in spirit and purpose. Be one in spirit or purpose. And I have this on your note, guys, but put out the line there. It it has, it literally can be translated, be one souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, one soul. Be one soul. And it describes people who live in harmony, having the same desires, passions, and ambitions. He says in the church, be one-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, be people who say, I care so much about advancing the gospel. I care so much about making Christ look good. I care so much about living in a manner worthy of the gospel that with you, I'm going to be one-souled. We're so committed to living for him, that it's like we're one soul. And he, and I think then he gets really specific in a way that helps. He says, don't do stuff out of selfish ambition. The Greek word means strife. Don't do things out of strife. And he's talking about pride that prompts people to push for their own way. <clears throat> think about in your church. Think about with your husband's. Think about with that person that kind of drives you crazy. How many times do you go, when I really look at it, I mean, I think I'm just living what, I'm just telling what's right. But when you really examine your motives, you go, I think there might have been a little selfish ambition there. I wanted my way. I wanted him to listen to me. I wanted him to come along and do my way, do my thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit, he says in verse 3. Vain conceit. And there he's referring to pursuit of personal glory. Personal glory. A place you can put on your line. Things like gossiping. Where 
saying, I want to make me look better, so I've got to make somebody else look bad. Do you ever leave heartstrings and talk about anybody around your table in a negative way? Do you ever leave a church service and talk about somebody putting them down to make yourself look better? Personal glory. Um... I look at all this and I say, in when there come to differences, and man, I just need this scripture all the time, don't you? I just need this all the time when I'm going, we disagree about something. I just need to say, I'm going to lay down my pride and ego in this and say, I don't have to always agree with you about everything, but I'm just going to love you to death. I'm just going to be humble towards you. I'm going to not be saying, this is my way or the highway. I need to be that way with John. I need to be that way with you. I need to be that way with my kids. I need to be that way with people who kind of bug me. I need to say, I'm just going to be loving. And with other Christians, I'm going to be one in spirit. And I'm not going to do things to build me up and to put you down. I wrote down here, being soulmates, subordinate to one another, putting other people ahead of me. It doesn't mean that I don't speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean that I don't say uh, we need to address an issue. But it does mean that I'm going to be really careful to not look like there's a totem pole and I'm on top. And I think a lot of us would go, well, I am not that way in this situation. They're wrong. And every time I get that way, I begin thinking, I wonder if there's some pride and ego in here that really needs to be addressed by the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 3, live with humility. Uh, Do you see that back there in Philippians? Go back to Philippians again. Uh, <laughs> verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Live with humility. It's interesting. This is a word that was probably coined by Paul and New Testament writers. The idea of humility was uh, uh, was always looked at in a derogatory term. In fact, I put on your notes there, it was a term of derision with the idea of being low, shabby, humble was not a good thing. And Paul and New Testament writers in Jesus brought it to a new level to say, it is the way to live. And when he wrote that, it had to be like a slap in the face of people who said, you're kidding. In the Roman world, you're not supposed to be humble because if you do, people will uh, uh, take you as their, as their uh, they'll, they'll do war against you and take you as their, what do you call that? Take you as their, um, as their what? As their hostage, yeah. And Paul says, and Jesus says, humility is the way to live. And he says, in fact, consider others better than yourself. Oh my goodness. I read that and I go, I don't get it. You're really, do you really mean that? Are you really telling me to consider other people better than myself when I'm really frustrated with them and angry at them and disagreeing with them? And then I think, oh, how quickly might that resolve some problems? How quickly might that deflect um, anger and frustration if I begin saying, hmm, I'm going to take myself off of that pedestal. I'm going to just say, you are really special. Maybe I could learn from you. Now, I know it's easy for me to say that standing up here. It's much harder when I'm in the middle of the situation. But man, I'm just trying to get this deep in the core of my being so that whenever I'm frustrated with people or aggravated at people or angry at people, I go, right now, consider them better than yourself, Patty. And then he says, think about other people's interests. He says, love people so much and get yourself off of that podium, that pedestal so much that in the middle of trying times and testing times, you just model Christ-likeness. Um, we, I, had a, I was trying to think of personal illustrations of this. In home group, um, a few months ago when we were going through the election time, we have people in our home group who are diehard Democrats and people who are diehard Republicans. And I mean both sides. are. We have some people who are as hard-nosed Republicans as you can get and some people who are as hard-nosed Democrats as you can get. And the election was coming. And I could just hear and sense and 
feel little things going on of, you know, little waves of, of, oh yeah, this is really scaring me. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's not even November yet. So last summer, we had a, a home group one night where I said, let's talk about this. And let's be open and honest about this. And let's talk about how how do we approach this election season living in a manner worthy of the gospel instead of getting... And these are people who love each other very, very much. But it had the potential of having... Of, of being pretty disruptive. And at one point, after we had talked for an hour, an hour and a half and brought up some of this stuff, one of the people in our home group said this. I wish I could get the exact words. She said, you guys have thought that this would cause me to not love you? She said, in the light of how much I love you, politics is nothing to me. And she's one of the people who's one of the most diehard on one of the sides. She said, but in the light of how much I love you, Politics just doesn't hold a candle. And I went, that's it. In the light of how much I love you, even when we disagree about stuff and hold very strong feelings on either side, I can love you, I can deflect my own ego, I can get off the pedestal, I can say, let's still be able to pray together, to work together, to go forward together. And I think that was just such a great illustration of what I'm trying to say here. Yours might not be politics. You might be sitting around the table with somebody who just, they just drive you crazy. You don't like the personality. In the light of how, have you ever gotten any consolation, any encouragement from Christ? Have you ever gotten any comfort? Have you gotten ever any tenderness? Have you ever gotten any fellowship? Okay, if you've had any of that yourself, you didn't deserve it. Don't you wonder if you didn't drive Jesus crazy yourself at times? In the light of all of that. Um, I put a little quote there on your note-taking guides in a box that is really, really one of my favorite quotes right now. You know, I kind of go through periods of time when I like quotes, one quote especially. This is my quote right now. Andrew Murray wrote a little book called Humility. I try to read it about every year. It's only about this thick, but it has so much stuff in it that it's really, really compelling to me. And this is the quote that I got from him recently again. Man's chief care, his highest virtue... And his only happiness now and through all eternity is to present himself an empty vessel, an empty vessel in which God can dwell and manifest his power and goodness. In the light of problems among believers, because he's obviously talking to believers here, but we can stretch it past that, but in the light of problems between believers, man, if I can just be that empty vessel in which God can manifest his power and his goodness, just takes care of a lot of stuff, doesn't it? An empty vessel. And sometimes to get more empty, i got to get before him and say, would you cleanse out of me any desire to consider myself better than others? Would you cleanse out of me any selfish ambition in this? Would you cleanse out of me any vain conceit? <coughs> My chief need in life is just to be his empty vessel in which he can manifest his power and his goodness. If we all leave here today saying, whatever happens, I want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. If we all leave here today and say, I'm your empty vessel for you to fill on a regular basis so that you can manifest yourself through me. Man, what a difference will make. What a difference will make. And I read all of that and say, there's a part of the human nature, there's a part of that carnal man who says, that's too hard. It's easy to say right now in heartstrings, but that's too hard. And it's easy maybe for you to say, oh, Patty, you're not really going to live that way every moment of your life, are you? 
And I go, oh, you've forgotten something. It's not Patty, who's your role model. Paul goes, let's look at your role model. Somebody who lived it completely, totally, to the nth degree. And so he says in verses 5 to 11, Jesus defines this. And so he's calling us to live like our example. Pardon me? Did I skip one? What did I skip? Uh, but oh, they sound so hard. But oh, they sound so hard. I forgot to put a line underneath that. Oh, they sound so hard. So he says, let's live like our example. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Most scholars believe that this was probably one of the first hymns of the church. Some people think Paul even wrote it. Most scholars think that probably Paul was taking a a hymn of the day and then kind of inserting some of his thoughts into it. But whatever, it probably was an early hymn. And I just picture people in that early church singing this, this hymn of of, um, proclamation of who Jesus is. And this is the example I'm called to follow. Not an example of Patty, not an example of you, but here's the example that I'm supposed to model. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of who? Your attitude should be the same as that of whom? Your attitude should be the same as that of whom? My attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, would it surprise you to know that the word servant right there is the word doulos that we had in the very first lesson that meant living tool? Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Real fast, let me just throw out a few words to you here. And I just want you to see where it says your life over to the right. I want you to just write like... um, you know, like a thought or maybe a, a, an arrow that says, yeah, I'm making progress. Or an arrow that says, oh man, I'm terrible at this. Or a little star that says, yeah, I think, I think God's working on me there. Or maybe a sad face or something. Just write something beside it when it says, your attitude should be the same as, as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he didn't use his position to get his way. It uses the word grasp there, which means to take advantage of or to exploit someone. His status, he was equal to God, and yet it led him to serve, not to demand privileges. What about your life? What about my life? I've been using this as a checklist against me, too. He didn't use his position to get his way. Do you try to get your way a lot? Do you use angry words to get your way? Do I walk into a situation saying, you must serve me? Or do I walk into a situation saying, I'll serve? He didn't use his position to get his way. How's your life doing with that? Wow. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. It literally means to nullify or to make of no account. He gave up all his rights as God for a time. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 9, 12. First Corinthians 9, 12. Do you ever find yourself saying, but I have a right for this, to this? I have a right for him to, to, to be this way. I have a right for people to treat me this way. I have a right. I have a right. I have a right. Man, we live in a culture that just believes in our rights. And Jesus gave up his rights. Oh my goodness, my example gave up his rights. And Paul says in chapter 9, verse 12, if you're in the NIV, it's... Uh, part B, where it says, but we did not use this right. 
On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. That is one of, for me, one of my most convicting verses in the Bible. I give up anything in order not to hinder the gospel of Christ, which leads me back to chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says, our little card, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Oh, my goodness. Now, Jesus was not a mamby-pamby, like, I don't speak truth. Every page of the Gospels, you see him speaking truth. But he gave up his rights when it came to selfishness in order for the Gospel to be proclaimed. And it says he took on the nature of a servant. In verse 7, he became a doulos, a living tool. And that's where I wrote the question, do I approach life wanting to be served or to serve, like my example? And then it says he humbled himself, which is the opposite of pride. He, gave, he did not live with pride, he humbled himself, and then he was obedient to the nth degree. Did you know that crucifixion was only designed for the lowest of the lowest of the lowest? The worst slave got crucifixion, and the Son of God let himself go there. Now, I want you to answer a question around your table. See where it says there, finish the statement? I want you to be real honest with each other. I want you to finish the statement. I know this is how I'm told to live according to Scripture, but, in other words, give some instances where those around your table, where you live selfishly in church, in family, in work situations, And the excuses that you give to live that way. For instance, you might say, I know I should live like Christ, but you don't know how my husband treats me, so I react by withdrawing from him. How would you answer that question around your table? Got three or four minutes. Go. Hey, as. As we we close here this morning, I want to finish it up by um, looking at the reward part. Let me finish your blanks real fast so you don't go crazy. Let me say that all of this flies in the face of our culture that believes in self-promotion, boasting, self-aggrandizement. You know, it's all about me. I mean, you look, I've just been watching TV lately from the standpoint of how horribly non-Christian it is. Rock stars, basketball stars, uh, uh, celebrities, it's all about them. And it just makes me sick. Because that's what our kids are growing up to learn to, to emulate. And here's Jesus who says, no, you lay your rights down, you live for other people, and you serve. I found this quote by Warren Wiersbe, many people are willing to serve others if it does not cost them anything. But if there's a price to pay, they suddenly lose interest. Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. I'm asking the Lord to help me. Uh, One of my 2013 goals, I can't remember if I told you this yet or not, is to help me, and it's a scary prayer for me to pray because... um, because I know it'll be at a cost. I'm asking him to help me to learn how to love sacrificially, to love people sacrificially. And as I do that, I say, okay, I know that there will be a cost to pay for that, but I know as I look at this last part that there's going to be a reward for living the way he wants you to live. Jesus waited for the reward, but the reward eventually came. Look at, go back to Philippians Chapter 2 again, and look at the reward, a verse that you know very, very well, a section of scripture you know very, very well. Verse 9, therefore, after he'd done all these things, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wiersbe said it's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life that the more we give, the more we receive. The more we sacrifice, the more God blesses. And so I go back again to that quote 
by Murray that I'll ask you to stick in your mind one more time. My chief care, my chief, my highest virtue, my only happiness now and through all eternity is to present myself as an empty vessel in which God can dwell and show his power and goodness. May each of us live so that God can live through us, so that Christ can live through us. May we serve, may we sacrificially love, may we lay aside our rights when it will make Jesus look good. May we back down on arguments so that the argument diffuses. May we make Jesus look good around your table. Somebody lead out in prayer. Yeah. What'd you say? There's no question about the fact that we cannot live this way at all in the least. There's not a chance in the world of it happening in ourselves, by ourselves. It just won't happen. It's too totally contrary to the human nature. But because of you, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. And I pray this week... Between now and next Wednesday, you'll give every single one of us the opportunity to put it into practice. And when it happens, when, when that opportunity comes up and we begin saying, I can't back down, shut up, uh, give in, uh, whatever, that immediately there will be this nudge from the Holy Spirit that says, no, you can't, but I can step aside. Let me love through you. Let me close your mouth. Let me cleanse your heart. Let me do it. Help us, Lord Jesus, this week to be radically other-centered. So that somebody begins noticing and wants to know you as a result. Thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. My microphone went out today. The back yeah, just, just went like I was talking in one second. It was gone.